This is exactly right. Case Files, an award-winning podcast, presents unforgettable true crime stories. Presented by an anonymous host, Case File delves deep into the crimes, investigations, and trials of solved and cold cases from around the world. With more than 250 episodes, the podcast has covered infamous unsolved mysteries, notorious murders, and lesser-known cases that deserve more attention. Discover why everyone from Rolling Stone to Time Magazine is calling it a must-listen experience. Follow Case File wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kate Winkler-Dawson. I'm a journalist who's spent the last 25 years writing about true crime. And I'm Paul Holes, a retired cold case investigator who's worked some of America's most complicated cases and solved them. Each week, I present Paul with one of history's most compelling true crimes. And I weigh in using modern forensic techniques to bring new insights to old mysteries. Together, using our individual expertise, we're examining historical true crime cases through a 21st century lens. Some are solved, and some are cold. Very cold. This is Buried Bones. Hey, Kate. How's it going? It's going well, Paul. How about you? I'm doing great. What's been going on with you? Well, a few things, actually. So this is season eight of Tenfold More Wicked, which just premiered this week. Uh, I love this season. It's about a woman who is suspected of killing members of her family. And it's a big question mark. It's in New Orleans in 1910, and it's a huge mystery. So I'm really interested in hearing what listeners think about that show. And for today's episode of Buried Bones, I've been prepping a lot. Not that I don't normally prep. You know, I prep a ton. But I'm kind of nervous because... This is a story that one of my really good friends, who's an incredible writer, wrote for Texas Monthly. And she listens to this show all the time, and she's a Paul Holes fan. And so <laughs> I know she's listening. I rarely have that happen, where I know the reporter's listening to me. So I really hope I do her justice. I have so much respect for Pam Koloff, who's an outstanding author and journalist. I imagine that you probably have had your hero look over your shoulder on some of the cases that you do. So it's a little bit of extra pressure for me. No, I I completely get that. That's a tough position to be in because you want to do justice, not only to the case, but now you have that added pressure, you know, somebody that you really respect and who knows the details of this case, right? So for me, the funny thing is, is that since I got into this, this true crime world, I have family members, uh, including my father, as well as aunts, cousins that listen. And, you know, that is a little odd for me. You know, it's like, because <laughs> I, I did my entire career without them really knowing what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And then here I am now talking about sexual homicide and, you know, different things that would be very awkward to talk about as a kid with your parents. You know, it's just, mm-hmm. it's just kind of a, a situation. But I think it's a similar feeling because I always feel if I start thinking about that, then I'll start to shut down and I have to just kind of, well, put that aside and they're going to hear the, you know, they're going to hear Paul. That's what's going to be happening. It's a unique experience. I mean, you know, my mom is a huge Paul Holes fan and sort of a Kate Winkler Dawson fan. It goes off and on <laughs> on the story. She's a big Kate fan, I'm sure. She says she's a huge true crime fan. She listens to more podcasts than I even thought existed on true crime. Oh, wow. But I have a group of seven girlfriends who I've known my whole life, some of them since middle school, and they text me. They all listen. And I always put them in my book and acknowledgments and stuff, and they text me because they'll listen to the show. So I feel like I'm in a permanent audience sometimes, and I want to do really well, but especially because I respect Pam Koloff so much as a journalist. And I remember reading about this story and thinking, what a horrible miscarriage of justice. Hmm. And when she wrote it, it was a miscarriage of justice. And thankfully, 
There was a little that was captured later on, but certainly not enough. This story came from her article called Unholy Act, which was in Texas Monthly in 2005. So it's an older story that starts in 1960, Texas. So let me just go ahead and set the scene. Okay. This is a story that some people might have heard of just because it's been, for me, devastating to read about and involves a woman named Irene Garza. She was 25 years old and she was in McAllen, Texas. She was this quintessential small town, smiling beauty who was wonderful to her family, who was very popular, homecoming queen. She was the first Hispanic twirler at her mostly white high school and the first person in her family to get a college degree. So she was seemingly the perfect child, someone who her family just adored. And I will tell you something just from the start that's a little creepy to me. She regularly attended services at McAllen Sacred Heart Church, which is a Catholic church. And the creepy part to me was that men would go specifically to check her out because she was so beautiful. And I really hate emphasizing the beauty of women because it feels like we don't talk about how good looking a man was when he's been killed. Why are we talking about how good looking women are? But that fact just really struck me as odd. And somebody who, to me, I think from the start, it sounds like Irene Garza was maybe exploited a little bit because of her beauty. And I think probably always lived in a little bit of level of discomfort in this town, I imagine. So at the very beginning of the story, I want to kind of set the scene for that. What do you think? Okay, so if if I understand what you just said, is that men were attending mass specifically because Irene was there, and then they're just eyeballing her while they're at mass. Yes. Okay. So already there's a creepiness factor to the story for me. She was a very popular school teacher, very intelligent, and Irene was very popular, just seemingly no enemies whatsoever. So you can see where we're heading here. She is uh, about to become a victim of a, a really terrible thing. The day before Easter Sunday in 1960, this was April 16th, which is a Saturday, she asked her parents if she could borrow the car. She said she wasn't going to have it very long, but she wanted to go to Sacred Heart for confession. And she said she'd be right back home. So she went to church. People saw her there. Lots of parishioners saw her there, recognized her. People saw her go into the church, but they didn't see her leave the church. First of all, Tell me about safety in a public building like that. I'm assuming you've investigated some cases that probably involve not necessarily directly people in the church, but it's not a very secure building, most of them. Is that right? No, that's true. You know, I I do have, just from personal experience, experience with the Catholic churches, the buildings around it, you know, as, as I was a boy going through like confirmation and everything else. So, you know, I have a general sense of that just from my own experiences. But also, I do have a case that after I retired for a show that I did where a Catholic priest was beaten to death inside the church facility, you know, and part of assessing, well, who could have done this type of crime is also assessing the facility, who has access in and out. Mm -hmm. And when you do have a facility that is going to be generally open to the public and is not secure, then that opens up the suspect pool. And so it can complicate the investigation. And then you're mixing in not just the public, but everybody who works at the church. You've got people who are saying, well, if you think I'm a suspect, look at all the people around me. I have an alibi. I think it just complicates things. It's almost like not being at a concert necessarily, but there's just so many people that could be around and little hiding places in churches. Apparently, this was a fairly large Catholic church. So let me get into the details. No one saw her leave. People saw her go in. And this is the day before Easter, so it's probably a little bustling here in the church. She still lived with her parents. She was 25, but she lived with her parents. When she didn't come home that night, her parents knew something was wrong, and they reported her missing to the police that night. She had vanished. Nobody knew what happened to her. 
There was a huge manhunt within that day. People were alarmed. She was not a potential victim who was a high-risk victim. This is someone who was expected to be back home and didn't come, and this had never happened before. Two days later, which was after Easter Sunday, a passerby found a single high-heeled shoe on the side of the road, and her parents said that this was her shoe. This doesn't mean that she's dead. It just means there's a little bit of a piece of evidence Do you think that this type of evidence from a family's perspective is encouraging or discouraging or neutral? What do you think? That is just not a good sign. Here you have a young woman. This isn't a a runaway situation to where she may just be trying to discard, you know, things that are impractical as she's, you know, moving on to whatever next life she's really wanting to pursue. This is a situation where the victimology suggests that uh, she likely was taken against her will. Mm -hmm. And when clothing items are starting to be discarded, and I've got cases like this, it never ends up well. Really? Yes. Okay, well, let's see where we go with this one. The next day, they find her purse, which is more bad news, of course. Yes. Not far from where the shoe had been recovered. Her belongings, including the driver's license, were still inside. So this doesn't sound like if she were taken that this is a robbery. And you and I have often talked about if a woman goes missing and it appears like she's been taken, it's pretty much never for a robbery. Is that right? You know, that that is right. Anytime a, a woman is involved in where she's been abducted, and it all depends on, on the past, but there may be a financial motive aspect. There may be items of value taken, but more often than not, the reason that woman has been abducted is for sexual assault. They also find a lace veil that she wore during confession in the area. So we don't even know if she made it into confession yet. They're still trying to gather evidence. Parishioners just said she was around as of right now. Nobody could point to where she went, but her intention was to go to confession. Again, a building where people could come in and out when they wanted to. It's during the day. So the family's going through hell for five days, and then it gets much worse when the morning of April 21st, so this is five days after she went missing, her body was spotted floating in a canal in the city of McAllen, which is where she lived. They find her body floating there, And I'm assuming you want to hear the results of the autopsy now, or do you want more details surrounding the body? Uh, Is she found clothed? Is she found nude? And then we can get into the autopsy. Her body was found covered in mud and was placed into the canal after her death. So it doesn't sound like she was killed at the canal. It sounds like she was dumped there. She was still wearing her blouse, which was partially unbuttoned. She was wearing her bra her skirt, and her slip. She was missing shoes and stockings. She was missing her underwear and some jewelry. And it sounds like this is the beginnings of what we're going to find out about a sexual assault. Her condition of her body is it was partially decomposed, but the skin was largely intact. So this is five days later. We're presuming it's been in the canal for five days. The skin was largely intact, but peeling over the hands. Yeah. What does that mean? Well, that's a phenomenon that we see with floaters, bodies that have been in the water for a period of time, or bodies that are are decomposing but haven't been in the water. It's degloving, where the skin on the hand, and it's relatively thick, it will start to separate away during this decompositional process. And this is critical from the perspective of identifying the victim, because that outer surface of the skin is where we can get the fingerprints in order to identify the victim. Okay. So it's absolutely important to recover that skin if it's completely detached. And there have been times, I've even done this, where I have literally inserted my fingers inside the kind of the degloved finger of a victim in order to roll a print. Um, But it does tell me, though, that, you know, she's been missing for five days. In all likelihood, she probably was killed near or shortly after she went missing. This is an opportunity for me to ask something that I've been wondering for a long time. When decomposition happens on a body, what is the first thing to go? My notes say partially decomposed. 
Does that mean they aren't likely to identify her face because your skin is very thin? Is that what's first to go? No, you know, the physical changes to the body all depend on what happened, where the body's at, the environmental factors, insects, etc. So, you know, very early on, part of the thing to pay attention to, of course, is where the insects are attracted to. Flies will come to the body, it's shocking, very, very quickly after death. Mm-hmm. And they will lay their eggs in moist areas. So how the insect activity progresses at that point is going to give an indication as to what the insects had access to. But absent, you know, something that is disfiguring like that, and you just have a body that is going through normal decomposition, Mm -hmm. of course, you, you have the liver mortis, the lividity that shows up, the blood settles with gravity. That's something we have to pay attention to. Rigor comes and goes. The time frame of when that happens is dependent on many factors. But oftentimes, the first thing that you're going to see is the starting of the distension of the abdomen. Because your body, I mean, you have this huge population of bacteria in your gut, in your intestines. Mm -hmm. And your body keeps that bacteria in check during life. But at death, that bacteria now just is able to start, in essence, consuming you from the inside out and starts producing gases. And so you'll start to see the body bloat up. And if you ever pay attention to roadkill, and in Texas where it's very warm, you likely have seen animals that look like they're balloons. And this is where they have completely just distended from all the internal gases until that gets to a certain point where the gases escape. And then the body starts to just cave in on itself, insect activity progresses. And depending on the weather, you can get the mummification. There's so many different factors. When you have a woman that's floating in the water, you have different phenomena that are occurring, Mm -hmm. which can speed up or slow down different aspects of decomposition. Well, let's talk about the water because it really messed some things up for investigators. Things that we do know, she had been sexually assaulted. She had had head trauma, which they believed happened after her death, which sounds like it could have been maybe during the transfer from wherever this death happened to the canal, but they just said head trauma after her death. Is that blood pooling? How would they know? How do you distinguish that during an autopsy? Well, there there are times when you can definitively say that damage to the body is post-mortem. And oftentimes, this is taking a look at, let's say, if you are dealing with wounding to the soft tissue, and if it's to her head, maybe her face or scalp, and there's a lack of hemorrhaging in the margins of the wound. Okay. So that would suggest that possibly she was dead at the time that that damage occurred to her body. I'm a little bit concerned about, you know, the water activity, you know, in terms of possibly leaching out the hemorrhaging and maybe they misinterpreted it. But at certain points, for example, once the bones dry out, when you have skeletal remains, Mm -hmm. if there happens to be a fracture, it's a very different looking fracture to an anthropologist or pathologist than if it's a fresh bone as if it occurred near or around the time of death. So there are changes to the body that occur that the experts look at to try to determine, is it truly Mm anti-mortem, which is really, really hard to say for sure. Mm -hmm. Usually they'll say it's what's called perimortem at or around the time of death, because you can't really say this person's alive or dead when this happened. And then there's truly times when you can say post-mortem after death because they can tell the body is not responding as if there's any living mechanism or the characteristics of the tissue or the bone, the harder uh, substances in the body are, are reacting as if it was still in a state as it were when the person was alive. Well, it sounds like the water was a big struggle with predicting anything because the notes that I have on our autopsy are pretty vague. It concluded that while evidence of strangulation could not be found, I'm presuming because of the um, decomposition, suffocation could have been carried out by placing a cloth over the mouth and nose, especially if the subject was unconscious. 
So I don't understand that. Can you translate that? Or are they just trying to rule a cause of death and this is their best guess based on the decomposition of her body? If the pathologist is saying there's a possibility of suffocation or asphyxia, then that pathologist is likely seeing some evidence of abrasions around the mouth or the nose with an object that is placed around her face Mm -hmm. or bruising on the inside of the lips, you know, when you have an object that's being pressed against her teeth. Mm -hmm. For them to conclude unconscious is a little bit of a stretch. That would suggest to me that maybe they're not seeing abrasions on her skin around her nose or mouth as if she's fighting, but possibly seeing something internal inside her mouth, like the bruising of the gums. Mm -hmm. So it's at least something they have to be physically observing something to kind of say, okay, this is a possibility. The strangulation. They couldn't find anything else, I'm assuming. There's no bullets, right? There's no stabbing. I guess they're just trying to eliminate options. Well, the, the level of decomposition, I do not think she's going to be so far gone that they're really that handicapped if she had been stabbed. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, most of the soft tissue is still going to be present after five days. If she had been strangled, whether manually or through a ligature, you know, there's the possibility that they would still be seeing hemorrhaging in the strap muscles, petechia, possibly the hyoid bone being broken, crushing of the various cartilage within the neck structures. Mm -hmm. So the fact that they're saying, well, we don't see any of that kind of rules that out in my mind. And that suffocation is, you know, this asphyxial death is a real possibility. Or what they are seeing is a result of somebody trying to muffle her cries I mean, if she's being contacted by the offender inside the church, which is somewhat of a public location, and being pulled to the offender's vehicle, they have to keep her quiet. And so some of the evidence that they're saying could be due to suffocation, maybe also due to the abduction process. Right, dragging somebody. And we actually have talked about this with the Mabel Mayer case where there was bruising on this young woman who was murdered behind an abandoned house and there was bruising and dragging. And investigators just said, this looks like drag marks that the killer made after she was dead and and placed in this particular area. So that is another part of the job that I'm sure is challenging. This water sounds like a nightmare. They were able to establish sexual assault, which was something I learned from you about a year or two ago, I did not really realize that water might not affect whether or not the pathologist or the coroner, whoever, could recover semen from inside someone, that being submerged in water didn't stop them from doing that. And that was the case here. They were able to collect, it sounds like she was sexually assaulted. They were able to collect some kind of evidence. So this really shows that you always process these bodies, no matter how bad the conditions they've been subjected to prior to them being found, you always go after the evidence. And my saying is you don't know until you look. Do not assume, oh, nope, she's been floating in the canal for days. We might Mm -hmm. as well not take swabs. Let's talk about other clues that they had, which uh, frankly were very few and far between. They found a shoe print in the dirt near the canal, which normally would not be a huge deal. People were down at that canal all the time, but there are strands of her hair that were found embedded in the footprint. So I'm assuming this is one of your rules of fingerprint, for instance, is innocuous unless it's in the blood of the victim or the blood of the killer. Would this fall under that category for you, that a piece of evidence that might not be very strong was just circumstantial, but because it's really strongly tied to the victim, it becomes more valid? Most certainly, it elevates the circumstances surrounding that shoe impression. You have to consider the variables. You know, there may be somebody that could have run across her body after she was, you know, in the canal, somehow got the hair on the bottom of the shoe and and then stepped and, and left it. But it is something that becomes important. And I, of course, am going to pay more attention to that particular shoe impression. Now, I should mention the scientific testing of hair has been found to be somewhat sketchy mm-hmm. over the decades. To conclude that this is her hair 
scientifically without modern DNA testing is going to be a stretch. But I imagine that this hair was the same color, same hair type. Yeah. The characteristics were, were there for them to say, okay, this looks like it's, it's the victim's hair. It's very vague, though. It's a vague piece of evidence. They've determined that the size is somewhere between a men's eight and a men's 11. I mean, I'm sure you could throw a rock in McAllen during that time period and, <laughs> and hit most men, and that's what it would be. So I'm not sure how exactly helpful that is. When is shoe print evidence actually helpful? Because I feel like you and I talk an awful lot about when it's sort of dismissive and not helpful at all. Has there been a case where it has been won based on a person's shoe print? Oh, well, I wouldn't necessarily put where a case is won solely on the shoe impression evidence, but the shoe impressions can be very helpful. If you have a sole pattern, an outsole pattern that is rare, imagine, well, just uh, maybe bring up a 1990, you know, the the O.J. Simpson case, Mm -hmm. and you have Bruno Mali outsole patterns in victim's blood at the crime scene. And there's only so many Bruno Malley shoes, uh, you know, of that sole pattern that have been made of that size, et cetera. It's significant evidence, Mm -hmm. you know. So the rarity of the impression becomes something that can be helpful, where now I can go after databases of where these shoes are sold, what customers bought them, et cetera, and see if I can develop a list of people that need to be tracked down. But also shoe impressions can, you know, where they're located can become important, helps reconstruct movements of the Mm -hmm. victim versus the offender. You know, so it is helpful. You have to pay attention to it. But oftentimes we recover shoe impression evidence and it comes back to the most popular make and model shoe in the world. And you go, okay, that doesn't help me. Uh, You know, it's not until I recover the suspect shoes and some something, whether it be shoe comparisons or there's uh, physical evidence on the shoes, like the victim's blood, et cetera, where things start to really add up. Boy, not a lot added up in this case. The water messed them up. They interviewed more than 500 people in McAllen. Nobody had any information, essentially. Very little people could give context for what Irene was doing besides going into the church with the intention of going to confession. One thing that I thought was curious, and I know you're going to ask how they know this, but the police insist that Irene had been tied down by something that dragged her under, and then she became untied, and it sounds like floated to the top. And what they recovered after dragging the canal was a clunky slide viewer with a long cord that was believed to have been the thing that weighed down her body. And I know this sounds a little silly, but it becomes important. I had no idea what they were talking about. So let me show you this photo of what it is. And since you are considerably older than I, Paul, maybe you know. <laughs> okay, first, I'm considerably older than you. So <laughs> you know, I mean, this, this, this sounds like el- elder discrimination. Um, Sorry. And this, what is that? I have no idea what it is. A slide viewer is what they call it. It looks heavy. Oh, is this like to be able to, like if you have a 35 millimeter slide negative, it's almost like, you know, uh, when, when I was a kid, you could put these little circular discs that had tiny little photos in there and kind of click through it and be able to view them through like this binocular vision. I'm wondering if this slide viewer is something where you could put a single slide in and be able to take magnify it so you could see it. Is that what it is? This doesn't look to me particularly big enough to weigh somebody down, but that's what the claim is. No. And it seems a little silly. I would not even bring you this piece of evidence except to say that it was a big turning point for the case. So let's wrap up the mystery person and give me your impression of who this might be. This is someone who obviously has been admired by many, many men in church, men who have come to church to see her, Irene Garza, very successful, very devout Catholic, someone who had probably a pretty predictable schedule. She was a school teacher. She was someone who went to church regularly. This happened the day before Easter. She was going to go to confession. A lot of people saw her there. This is a public church. People could come in and out if they wanted. It was very large. She was well-known. She is found with evidence that has, it sounds like, scattered 
kind of along the way to the canal. She is floated in the canal. It sounds like police believe that she was tied down by this odd device. Probably not odd for the Times, but odd for you and me. There are signs of sexual assault, and they aren't sure what exactly happened. They just know this is someone who was murdered five days earlier. Who do you think we're looking at? What kind of person, no robbery, it sounds like, what kind of person are we looking at as of right now? My focus right now, I think investigatively, is really going to start to vet who's inside that church. I want to know, did she meet with a priest in confession? What priest is that? What is that priest saying she told him? And then is he saying she left the confession? Did he give her Hail Marys to go do where now she's in the pew for the next half hour with a rosary, you know? And then who is flowing in and out during this time frame that she's there? You know, this is the core, I think, in terms of working the most logical suspect pool and then considering the possibility, well, maybe she did walk out of the church, but is immediately abducted before getting to her car. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, it's like, well, who's in the area? You know, it's talking to witnesses. Are these people who are attending the church or do you have other individuals nearby? Is this church near any businesses that possibly somebody could see, takes a look around and goes, boom, snatches her, you know? And so this is where you rely on those witness statements. At this point in time, there's no question. This is a sexually motivated homicide, but I can't say, is this a serial killer mm-hmm. or is this a person, offender, who took advantage of the opportunity? And one of the questions that I would have is, is would she regularly go to confession? Did she regularly go to confession at this time where mm-hmm. she establishes a pattern? I think those are all really good questions, and hopefully I can answer some of them moving forward. Let me tell you what has complicated the case for the police as they're working this. They are at the same time working another case that could be connected, that could be the same perpetrator. So let me tell you about that case. There is a woman who is 20 years old in 1960. Her name is Maria America Guerra. A few weeks before Irene disappeared, Maria had visited her home parish, which was located about 12 miles from Irene's church in McAllen. This is a different woman who has visited a different church. She was in the church and she noticed there was a man with dark hair and horned-rimmed glasses sitting in the pews by himself. She had seen him there earlier that day and he had been creepily watching her from his car and then now she's he's inside the church with her. She thought it was a little weird, but like a lot of people, she thought being in the church would be safe. Now, remember, this is not the same church. This is a totally different church, but just about 12 miles away. So she's in the church and this man's there, but she says she feels safe. She proceeds to go to the altar and knelt to pray and she felt someone grab her from behind and put a rag over her mouth. Now, remember, that's what the police had speculated happened with Irene Garza. This is the creepy guy who had been watching her. She managed to bite down very hard on his fingers and escaped the grip of him and ran out and nothing happened. But now the police are alarmed because you have one woman who sounds like she was about to be attacked but managed to get away because she bit his fingers. And another woman who's dead, who seems to be of the same demographic, early 20s and, you know, young Hispanic woman, and both things happening in a church. Who do we have here? Are we having someone who is targeting women at churches if these are connected? Well, potentially. Now I get very, very interested in terms of, okay, Who is going to be going to both of these churches? Because within maybe a particular geographic region, there are select church employees that will move between these various facilities. Mm -hmm. so, So that is going to be something I want to pay attention to because that could potentially give me a somewhat limited suspect pool. Who flows between these two churches? Right. So let's limit the suspect pool pretty quickly because this story gains steam when they start trying to figure out how they could connect to the evidence between these two cases and if it's the same perpetrator. When they make public this slide viewer, this odd device I showed you, you and I were both confused by, someone came forward and claimed it. And it was a priest Hmm. who was at the church 
And he was the priest who says he took Irene Garza's confession the night that she left, and she disappeared. Oh, jeez. I know. And he was a man named Father John Fight, and he became very well-known later on. Let me tell you about John Fight. He was a 27-year-old priest. He had recently finished his seminary training, and he had been in the area for about a year. Some people described him as bright and well-mannered, but other people said he was aloof and a little bit of a loner. Honestly, people would probably say that. The same thing about me, depending on what day. <laughs> no, never, never. Are you no, kidding? No, no, aloof. He was inconspicuous enough, and when police jotted down his physical description, he was a man with dark hair and horn-rimmed glasses. Okay. Who sounds very similar to the woman who said she was ogled at the other church and then attacked. Yeah. So now we're looking at a priest. Based on the the set of circumstances, it most certainly is not surprising that it's somebody that is within the church structure. As we know from Irene's circumstance, she goes into the church and never comes out. Does this priest, does he have a residence within the church or an office space that is limited access, that would be something I would be paying attention to because maybe he could have taken her into this limited access area where now that is where the sexual assault occurs and possibly the homicide occurs. And then when the time is right, he could move the body to a vehicle he has access to without anybody seeing that and then drive off and dispose of the body. Yeah, things are looking not so great for John Fight because of all the things you're talking about, access that he had. His name started to come up more regularly because he told people that he had been the person who had taken Irene Garza's confession that night. And the problem was he kept changing his story. So first he said he met with her that night she went missing. He told the police that she had visited him to discuss a question of conscience. We have no idea what she was going to tell him or if that's the truth. He sent her to the sanctuary to confess, which would have been a typical course of action for a priest in that situation. Obviously, he's saying, yes, I saw her that night and I had good reason. She requested me. The problem was that he then changed his story to say that he told Irene to go to the rectory, which is where members of the clergy lived. So he says, go to the sanctuary first, but then he changed his mind and said, go to the rectory. This would not have been normal at all for a priest to say that. No. I'm not Catholic. I don't know much about it, but I know you're saying this would not be normal also. Well, you know, I haven't practiced in, in so long. A lot of my knowledge about the sanctuary versus the rectory comes from another case of a nun who was killed on the monastery grounds and learning about, you know, the priests and their limited access spaces that they had on those premises. So in this case, he is telling this young girl after confession, go to the rectory where the clergy live. Yep. He is now isolating the victim from a public space within the church because that rectory is going to be limited access. Mm -hmm. So that is a red flag. What is the motivation of sending this young woman to the rectory? Yep. Right now, I would say it's because he's getting her closer to his residence to where now he can spend one-on-one -on -one time with her. So let's talk about the evidence that they begin to see just on his body. He has broken glasses. He said that he had been fidgeting with them while listening to parishioners and he accidentally broke his glasses. He had scratches on his hands, which he said were caused by scaling his home's second floor building balcony to get inside after accidentally locking himself out. And then he had a cut on his finger, but we've talked about you and I cut ourselves all the time. So these are all things that he's trying to explain away. Of course, this sounds like he's had an altercation. I'm assuming you, you agree with that. 
Well, depending on the the look of these scratches, you know, that's what I would have to see. Are the scratches consistent with his explanation or are the scratches more consistent with a human hand and fingernails? You know, does Irene have longer fingernails that would actually leave scratches? If there are scratches due to a struggle with Irene, then there's potentially maybe some bruising and, and other things that he would have acquired during that fight. They start interviewing the people who saw him that Saturday night. They said he was acting strangely. They said that he was coming and going from the sanctuary, and it was so disruptive that he had a backup in his confession line. So he was coming and going and staying busy, and here there are droves of people waiting for confession because I guess it's the day before Easter. So this is a time when he should have been down there taking confessions, and he's, it sounds like, doing something else. So he can't account for all of his time during this time period. Okay, so so let me summarize this at this point. Irene goes to confession. What's his name, Father? John Fight. Okay, so Irene goes to confession. She confesses. And he admits that, you know, she confesses to him in the confessional. He tells her to go to the rectory. Mm-hmm. And he's admitting that the slide viewer found out at the canal by her body is his. Right. But I had nothing to do with it. You know, I took her confession and that was the end of it. And that's it. And actually, John Fight has bigger worries than Irene Garza. John Fight is probably a little bit more concerned with Maria America Guerrera, who was the woman from the other church, because she picked him out of a lineup. She said, that's the guy who was creepy and staring at me, and I saw him in the church. That's the guy I bit. And they look at his hands, and there appears to be a bite mark on his hands. So he's questioned for Maria's attack. Attempted sexual assault is what they're saying while he's also being questioned about Irene Garza. They have a dead victim who they can't definitively connect to, but they also have this live victim who says, that's the guy, that's absolutely the guy. While they are trying to pursue whatever investigation they can get together of Irene Garza when there's not really that much information, I'm assuming they looked at his car, they just didn't have enough to charge him for Irene, They pursued this intent to rape charge with Guerrera, and it was a hung jury. Mm, Okay. So they don't have enough for Irene, but they thought they had enough. And instead of going through the process again, Fight decided to plead no contest to aggravated assault. $500 fine, and he walked. $500 for aggravated assault? Is that what would happen now? Isn't that a felony now? Or you know better than I do. Yeah, no, I mean, this would be a felony. I don't see where, like in the case of Maria, with what was done to her, where a prosecutor would let him off with just a fine. I mean, basically, that's like a citation, right? It's it's, it's the the lowest level misdemeanor uh, where you're just being fined, no jail time. I mean, he would probably be having to do some prison time uh, in this day and age. I am perturbed that that's all he got on Maria's case, yeah. especially especially knowing the evidence at this point against him in Irene's case. This is where authorities, prosecutors, they have to look at this with a bigger vantage point. This guy is a public safety threat, and they need to keep him isolated from the public as they continue working Irene's case. If they don't feel that they have enough to hold him, to charge him with Irene's homicide, then Maria's case is how you keep him in custody and the public safe while you build the case against Irene. But to let him back out with just a $500 fine, that's ridiculous. I agree. I don't know if they wanted to take on the Catholic Church. I don't know if they just thought either of these cases were just winless for them. They wanted to get him out of town. I don't know what the motivation was, but regardless, he was allowed to go. And then you think the way things should go is the Catholic Church should say, get out. We don't want you here and defrock him. And sadly, that is not what happened. They just moved him somewhere else. You know, at least in the past, that that seems to have been sort of the M.O. of the Catholic Church. Whether it be purposeful to cover things up or whether it just be out of ignorance in terms of who is this person and what he is capable of. You know, they may have been in a state of denial. There's just no way, you know, one of our priests could have done this. 
But right now, the evidence is stacked against him in both of these cases. Mm-hmm. An abduction, attempted sexual assault on a girl, and then the other one is a sexual assault homicide of a girl. It's it's frustrating to me because this is this is how you see more victims start to pop up because these guys slip through the cracks. Now we're going to travel through time because, as I said, the Catholic Church did not defrock him. The Catholic Church moved him. So he was in Texas. He went to a monastery in Missouri. And there are a couple of key people who initially do wrong, but then they finally do right. And the first one is a monk named Dale Tackney. And he was tasked with providing fight with spiritual counseling and upon his arrival, Tackney, this monk, says that John Fight confessed. The problem is, is that he didn't say anything for a long time. And when he finally did, let me tell you what he said. This is the confession as documented in, in my friend Pam's Texas Monthly article. Father Fight had asked her to come to the church rectory and had heard her confession there. After the confession, he had restrained the woman. Tackney thought that she might have been bound and gagged but he was not certain, and he had fondled her breasts. Before he returned to the sanctuary to hear confessions, he had moved her to the rectory basement because she was gagged. Later that evening, or in the days that followed, he moved her to another location. Then on Easter Sunday, he put her in a bathtub and placed a bag over her head. He heard her say, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. Tackney recalled, when he came back later on that day or early evening, he found her dead in the bathtub. And then that night, at what hour, I'm not certain, he put her in the car that was available to him and removed her and said he dropped her off along the roadside where there was a canal. So many questions. One, do you buy that story? And two, why would he confess immediately upon arriving at a monastery? I think the story has some truth with some falsehoods. It's the gap. He puts a plastic bag over Irene's head while she's in the bathtub. She's saying, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. And then he dismisses himself, right? And he comes back later Mm -hmm. and she's dead. So what he has done is he's minimized himself in terms of actually being present at the time Mm -hmm. of her death. He's basically going, "Hmm, you know, I didn't actually kill her, which is, hold on, you put a plastic bag over this woman's head while she's in a bathtub and she's saying, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, and you just leave her there. Right. Well, that in and of itself is homicide. Yeah. But he's minimized the actual act, the actual him inflicting the violence that he hold her down underneath the water with the plastic bag over her head. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a more likely scenario. And then he's putting her body in the vehicle. He may have left her. Maybe he had to go back into the confessional and take on more confessions and then come back. And then at the right time, when he could move her body to the vehicle at night, whenever nobody's there, that's when he does that. Why is he confessing at this point? You know, I've got to think just not thinking at it from a religious standpoint, uh, which, you know, obviously within Catholicism, you know, you confess in order to purge yourself of the sins that you've committed. Mm -hmm. I think just as a person, he's been living with that guilt and it was just eating at him and he just decided, you know what, I'm going to confess and I'm confessing to somebody that he perceived as privileged. Mm -hmm. This person would never divulge the details of this confession. Well, he didn't for decades and decades. And when John Fight was done with this monastery, they transferred him to a rehabilitation center for troubled priests in New Mexico. And he was there for six years and eventually climbed the ranks into a position of authority there where he actually was in a position to be able to clear a notorious pedophile, Father James Porter, and moved him to a new parish. So this is a guy who had been accused at one church of murder and sexual assault and finds himself less than a decade later in a position to clear and move a pedophile. I mean, unbelievable, unbelievable. Well, I guess I didn't know there was such an institution for troubled priests. Yeah, yeah. And then they're letting these individuals, such as Father, fight to go out and victimize some more. 
Right. And, you know, I've interviewed a woman who was a traveling nurse, essentially, who had been an addict and had stolen medicine from patients for years. And she would get caught and her job would just move her to a different facility or the facility would catch her and just make a note, please don't send her back here. And she just kept getting moved and moved until she finally just quit herself Hmm. and then went into recovery. But it was a passing of the buck. And I think that both of those situations were really bad. He ends up actually leaving the priesthood completely in 1972. So 12 years after Irene's murder. And he moves to Phoenix, Arizona. He has three kids. He settles into this quiet life as an insurance salesman. And he becomes a spokesperson for a local Catholic charity. And just moves on and lives a quiet life until 2002, when that monk we've been talking about, Dale Tackney, he was the monk that fight had confessed to. He couldn't keep the secret any longer. He didn't have a lot of evidence, including Irene Garza's name, but he shared what he knew with the police. And around the same time, not far off, there was a priest named Father Joseph O'Brien who worked with fight at the Sacred Heart Church, Catholic Church in McAllen, he also contacted investigators with his suspicions about what happened. And that is where the second or third act, depending on what we're looking at here, of this story goes into overdrive. I did not know the Texas Rangers had a cold case unit. Did you know that? Actually, yes. Of course you did. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know, one of the notable cases that I was involved with was in Fort Worth, Texas, uh, the Carla Walker case, a 1974 case. Mm-hmm. But since that time, you know, Fort Worth has been trying to get a cold case investigative unit. They they have two investigators assigned to it, but also they have worked closely with the Rangers. And then the genealogy lab that I'm a big fan of is Othram out of Houston. And they have worked very closely with the Rangers cold case unit. The Texas Rangers got a hold of this case and they dug into Irene's case file. And because you've got this testimony of this monk and this priest, but I mean, listen, we're talking about 30 to 40 years ago, they had this testimony. The district attorney in McAllen, who was a man named Rene Guerra, said there wasn't enough evidence, which is, I'm sure, something you've heard quite often. Not enough evidence. I don't want to try the case. That must have been incredibly frustrating considering the circumstances. He's the last person to see her alive, Mm -hmm. the markings on his hand, the accusations from the other woman. And you've now got, granted, 30 to 40 years later, these two men who are saying he did something. Does it sound like a case that would be very difficult to try just from what you know now? Well, with the circumstances, it is a circumstantial case, absent more evidence. However, I would say it it is on the brink. You know, back in, you know, 1960, I think they probably could have charged him with Irene's homicide and probably would have convicted him based on everything. As cases age, oftentimes you want to see more. And I think they need to spend a little bit more time, you know, freshening up. They now have uh, two witnesses coming forward. Tackney and the other father. Mm-hmm. So that's additional information. Uh, and now it is, okay, what physical evidence still exists in the, the property room that we can do modern technology on to be able to help show that he is the, the offender, Irene's killer in this case, and reaching out to others, mm-hmm. you know, try to track down other witnesses. And quite frankly, I'd be looking for other cases. I agree. I agree. And, you know, no matter what, the DA in um, 2002 said, no way, we're not going to do it. But an election came up. And in 2015, this sounds very familiar, 2015, the county where McAllen is voted to elect a new DA who campaigned specifically by saying, I will close that case. Oh. So they elected him. And the next year, John Fight at age 83 was arrested. Wow. In Arizona, brought him back to Texas. He was 83, had bladder and kidney cancer. 
and went through a first-degree murder trial that began in November of 2017, so about six years ago. Father O'Brien, who was the man who worked with Fight initially in McAllen, had passed away, so he couldn't testify. But he had, you know, spoken to police, and they had taken down his statement. But the monk did testify, 88 years old, got on the stand, remembered clear as day, gave important testimony, and John Fight on December 7th, 2017, was found guilty and sentenced to life. And we are talking about 57 years. 57, yeah. So he was convicted almost 60 years after Irene Garza was murdered. He was in prison for just about two years when he had a heart attack and died at age 87. Yeah. So this is what I meant by just a sliver of justice. It must have been so heartbreaking for her family now. And I mean, just unbelievable and a big deal in Texas. And most of my friends would know this story. It just was really heartbreaking. Well, it's it's so frustrating because think about this. He was out for 57 years. Yeah. He lived a life for 57 years that Irene never got. Yeah. He enjoyed his life. He continued to, to do things. This was a life he didn't deserve. Yeah. And we don't know what he did. He could have done other things. The two cases, Maria's case and Irene's case, he's a serial predator. And, you know, Maria's case, he's not hiding behind the cloth, you know, being a priest. You know, he's just a strange man in the church. He has access to her just because of who he is. But he's not portraying himself as a priest, I don't think. Mm -hmm. But in Irene's case... She's going to him. He's a trusted figure. He is using his religious authority to gain access to her and then ultimately take her life. It's despicable, you know, when you think about, you know, taking like an innocent young woman with all this promising future. I look at what he's doing in in those instances. I mean, he's not a one-off guy. He tried to abduct Maria, and then he, in essence, abducted and killed Irene. I bet he he's done others. I agree. And whether it's within the, the church structure or whether it's outside the church, you know, this is where it's like, okay, so he got convicted. I hope under Texas law that they he automatically had his DNA sampled as an offender of this type of case, and that was put up into the FBI's CODA system. So he's being searched against other cases as the evidence is being worked, and maybe someday he'll be tied to something else. I hope so. I hope that, because I agree with you. I don't think this was the only, these two cases were the only cases. Now, I want to end with the journalist who has done such outstanding work Pam has written a lot about crime at True Crime, and I admire her so much because of her research and the amount of sources that she checks. And I want to read the last two paragraphs of this because it is chilling to me, and she and I have been talking about this today. She met John Fite before he died in 2005, and before he was arrested, he was living in Arizona, and she went and knocked on his door. And she says, he stood there for a moment as if pondering what to do next. She had introduced herself and said, I'm here to talk to you about Irene Garza. There were many things that he could have said that he did not, that he was innocent, that Irene's murder had been a senseless crime, that he was tired of strangers knocking on his door, asking about a terrible thing that had happened a long time ago. Instead, he said something that I would think back to many times in the weeks to come. The speculation intrigues me, he said. Then as he turned to shut the door, he added, God bless you, dear. Creepy, terrible guy. Miscarriage of justice, even though he was in prison, still a miscarriage of justice. Absolutely. I I think part of the moral of this story is the failure to see the obvious back in 1960. Yeah. And this is something I've seen over and over, various levels within the justice system, is the failure to understand this type of offender. These types of individuals do not rehabilitate. Mm -hmm. I hope society is better today. And I think we understand this type of offender better. So when they are caught, they are kept for life away from public. 
but I'm not sure that that's always the case. And if there's some sort of undercurrent within a, a structure such as the Catholic Church that is just trying to handle things internally, basically they are contributing to other people losing their lives. I agree. I think that this was a very difficult case to report on and to talk about because at so many points this could have changed and it wasn't. When people ask me about the cases that bother me, this is one of those cases that bothers me a lot, that he got away with this for so long and so many people suspected and knew and just and didn't do anything about it. So moving forward, I thought that this was an important case for us to talk about because it is a reminder of exactly what you're talking about, people in authority, trusting people in authority, and just hoping for justice in a lot of these cases. And I hope you're right. I hope we we do end up finding out if he did this to anybody else, which I suspect he did. Next week, we'll have another case, another case in history, and I'll be happy to bring it to you, Paul. I am, as always, looking forward to it, Kate. This has been an Exactly Right production. For our sources and show notes, go to exactlyrightmedia.com slash sources. Our senior producer is Alexis Amorosi. Research by Marin McClashen and Kate Winkler-Dawson. Our mixing engineer is Ryo Baum. Our theme song is by Tom Breifogel. Our artwork is by Vanessa Lilac. Executive produced by Karen Kilgariff, Georgia Hardstark, and Danielle Kramer. You can follow Buried Bones on Instagram and Facebook at Buried Bones Pod. Kate's most recent book, All That Is Wicked, A Gilded Age Story of Murder and the Race to Decode the Criminal Mind, is available now. And Paul's best-selling memoir, Unmasked, My Life Solving America's Cold Cases, is also available now. Follow Barry Bones and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show. Visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase Barry Bones merch.